the 4 for 4's Most Accurate Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Smith. This episode is brought to you by Draft, which is the best place to draft your best ball teams this offseason. And those best ball contests are great preparation for your seasonal leagues. Best ball has certainly helped me prepare for the Scott Fishbowl, which just kicked off this week. And I'm going to talk about SFB9 with this episode's guest, my compatriot from 444.com, TJ Hernandez. We're also going to dig into potential regression for Patrick Mahomes play-calling tendencies of head coaches and offensive coordinators, as well as TJ's recent articles of 4 for 4 on the stats that matter most in fantasy to the tight end position. Before I bring TJ on, though, I want to tell you about the music on this episode, which is a track called Tenderness by the Parquet Courts. It's the closer from their 2018 album Wide Awake. The record sound meanders around, but in a good way, I'd say. It's got some serious earworm songs, and it's one of my favorite albums from last year. You can find Tenderness and all the other songs I use on this podcast on the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify. Check the link in the show notes to hear that. I also want to let you know about our latest giveaway to 444 subscribers. We're giving away 25 t-shirts, 8 signed jerseys for players including DeAndre Hopkins, Michael Thomas, and others. And best of all, one entry into a live main event draft at the FFPC in Las Vegas, which includes a night stay at Planet Hollywood and up to $300 towards airfare to Sin City for the draft. The total package for that grand prize is worth $2,500, and there are 15 different ways to enter to win. Check the link in the show notes to see all those different paths to victory, and make sure to get a 4 for 4 subscription if you don't already have one, because that's what gives you the best chance to win. And now I'd like to bring in TJ Hernandez of 444.com, at TJ Hernandez on Twitter. How you doing, man? Welcome in. It's good to have you on. Yeah, good to talk to you. Uh, we were just talking before. I think it's been a, almost a full calendar year since we've chatted in person. We're obviously in a 444 Slack, but uh, I guess this marks the official start to 444 season now that we're both on here. Right, and it wouldn't be a TJ and Greg podcast if we didn't have issues trying to get the uh, the audio to work in the first place. So but Aud- we, we, Audio we issues it. are my MO. That's what, I, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. We did it, man. We're here. Uh, we can hear each other, and that's, that's step one. Uh, step two is to talk about the Scott Fishbowl, which is what it seems like everybody's talking about right now on Twitter. And this kind of dominates the fantasy conversation. It kicks off the season as far as I'm concerned. And I'm just curious, how's your draft going so far? What division are you in? How do you like how your team's shaping up? Give us the details. How are you doing in Scott Fish? Uh, I mean, we're going. I'm in the sports conference, uh, the Soda Popinski uh, division. I pulled, I drew the uh, eighth pick in the draft. So we're, we're probably in the middle in terms of like speed of drafts. I see some people like eighth or ninth round already. We're halfway through the fifth. Uh, so for a slow draft, I mean, what are we on day one and a half? That's, that's pretty respectable. Uh, people have lives, you know, and it pauses overnight. Uh, so I expect to, to be about here. Uh, so I've, I'm still waiting on my fifth pick. I started Kittle, Odell Beckham, Baker Mayfield, and Amari Cooper in the first four rounds. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty similar approach to me. I drew the mm-hmm. sixth pick, and I took Kelsey at six, and then I took Beckham in the second, Damian Williams in the third, and Marlon Mack in the fourth, and I'm waiting right now to get my fifth pick in there. So I diverted to running back. I, I just couldn't hold out much longer. And mm-hmm. I don't know, Damian in the third just seems like a, a pretty good value to me based upon his upside to not only produce in the rushing department but also on the receiving side. And I almost took Marlon Mack over him in the third, so when Mack swung back to me in the fourth, I – just pounced again. I was like, yeah, I probably should go back to wide receiver here, but I'm going to, you know, at least hedge my bets on the running back front, especially because I'm not a big fan of stacking Williams and Kelsey, you know, two players from different aspects of the same offense. Do you have an issue with that sort of approach? I know that some amount of contrarianism is going to have to be employed to win the Scott Fishbowl, but I really don't like going after the tight end and the running back off the same team. How do you feel about that? 
Uh, I think there, I I can see both sides to the coin. I mean, that's a unique situation just because if you, I mean, if I'm going to stack a running back with a passing game, I'd rather do it like running back quarterback because in theory you're getting all those touchdowns. Whereas if you're doing like running back tight end, uh, you're you could be cannibalizing yourself a little bit on some weeks. Uh, probably not as much as most people think, but uh, in that situation. If Tyreek doesn't play, all of a sudden you might have a way bigger percentage of the offense than you think. But that's probably, I mean, it's probably not something I'm trying to force, especially when you have to spend that much draft equity on it. But then, I mean, if we're going to talk about stacking, it's something I I, I end up forcing myself. Uh, My second round pick, if I didn't get a top four or five running back, I was pretty much set that I was going with one of the big three tight ends. Kelsey came off the board at 1.05. I took Kittle at 1.08 over Ertz just because I think that can be slightly contrarian. I think Mm -hmm. most people are going to take Ertz uh, second overall, so that automatically switches up my roster construction a little bit for most people that are going to be in a similar draft spot. Uh, And then second round was kind of where everything the the decision points swung for me as far as what I'm going to do for the early part of this draft. I was I was torn right here at, at the uh, the fifth pick in the second round between Odell and Mixon. And Odell is a guy, obviously the scoring format's a, a little different, uh, but he's a guy that I think can leapfrog most of these running backs in regular season scoring just because of his new situation. So when it came back to me uh, in the next round, I was going, do I start my quarterbacks and risk a run or do I get running back. I decided I'm going to stack Odell with Baker and just go for that super high variance uh, approach. And that's why I don't have a running back yet. Yeah. I would have considered Baker in the fourth round there when I took mm-hmm. Mac, but he didn't make it to me in that right. spot. Unfortunately. I, I figured there was no way he just, there's so much buzz around him. And especially cause this is, I mean, it's, it's a pros versus Joe's type draft, but it's so industry heavy that I think I've seen Baker Mayfield win the first round in some draft. So I, I was pretty convinced he wasn't going to make it back to me in the fourth and again just having odell i just want that high variant stack there i want to go back and talk to you more about that decision point the second round because that was something Mm -hmm. that i really waffled over i also took beckham like you at 207 but i was looking at running backs as well and i even put it into the four for four slack i said help me out guys i need i need some Mm -hmm. guidance here in terms of which direction to go here because i was looking at Le'Veon bell and james connor at running back both of whom i think could be you know fine rb1 type players and produce both in the passing game and in the running game. I, I did eventually kind of side in the side of Bell over Connor just because I mm-hmm. think he's going to get more work as a receiver. But in the end, I, I took Beckham because I feel like like mm-hmm. you were talking about that upside there for him to smash on a weekly level, you know, hit 100 yards receiving, 150 yards receiving maybe, and be a little bit more stable of a commodity. That mattered yeah. to me, and that's why I went with a wide receiver there. It just so happens that you wrote up both Le'Veon Bell and Odell Beckham Jr., at four for four in the player profile section. So I'm curious, just at a base level, kind of taking Scott Fishbowl out of it, what are the pros and cons of drafting each of those players to you? And I guess uh, we know what you would have done in my position because you Mm -hmm. took OBJ in the second as well. So uh, we don't have to get to that, but yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit more about what you think about bell and OBJ, both in new situations in 2019. Yeah. So for, um, for wide receivers, it's it's often uh, a little risky to take uh, a receiver switching teams. Uh, but when you have like this super alpha receiver, I don't think that uh, concern weighs as much. Uh, I think Odell is, I don't think anyone would disagree, is a top five, if not top three wide receiver uh, talent. And obviously fantasy producer, we've seen that in the league. And he's getting a, a really big upgrade at quarterback with Baker Mayfield. Uh, if we look at touchdown rates, uh, adjusted yards per attempt, yards per attempt, uh, Mayfield 
Mayfield was doing in his rookie season, basically like what Eli's done at his best over the last four seasons. Uh, so when you when you put OBJ in that situation, I, I think that he's in a position where he could really be the 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 overall top non-quarterback fantasy scorer this year in, in uh, PPR standard scoring leagues. Not not talking about Scott Fishbowl here. And if I kind of looked at what Baker did best last year, obviously in a relatively short sample, and and what Odell does best in terms of where and uh, how Baker likes to throw the ball, specifically looking at routes and where Odell has excelled, and they have a lot of similarities in where they match up. Uh, so I don't think there there's a, a ton of downside for Odell here. I think the main concern people might look at is it's an offense with a lot of weapons, and uh, you look at Jarvis Landry, who traditionally has commanded a pretty high target share. But if we look at his splits with Freddie Kitchens, who we'll probably get into a little bit more in this podcast uh, when we talk about the play callers, Jarvis Landry's splits in terms of uh, his his target share really went down with Kitchens, like 27% before Kitchens, uh, 20 to 21% with Kitchens. And I think that's something that could continue. I think Odell's going to continue in that like 27 to 30% range, and everyone else is going to get the rest. So Jarvis can sit in that 20 percent range joku could sit in that 15 to 17 percent range and odell can still be in that 28 to 30 percent target share range and that really the, the math works out there as for Le'Veon bell the upside's obvious with bell he's he's going to get the volume uh this is a jets team that even though they they were uh had the, some of the fewest wins in the league last year still near the top of the league in terms of running back touch share so despite bad game script they were still giving their uh running backs the ball now they have adam gase taking over who also has traditionally been uh, a very running back friendly coach his team's uh, three of the last four years have ranked in the top 10 in running back touch share the concern for bell is touchdown upside and offensive line this is one of the worst offensive lines yep. uh, in the league last year he's He's traditionally ran behind one of the best offensive lines in the league. Uh, and then how much is this offense going to to progress? They ranked bottom three in yards per drive that, last year, and that uh, correlates almost directly with uh, touchdown upside because you need to maintain those drives to have those opportunities. So is Bell going to even have a chance to get those double-digit touchdowns? That's where my concern comes in for Bell. I, I mean, the volume's going to be there, and obviously we want that volume, but if we're looking at running backs that are being taken in the top top 10 i guess uh maybe Gurley's the only other guy that has as big of a range of outcomes as bell i, I think it's it's uh kind of ironic that Gurley Gurley's season his last season with fisher is kind of the the comp that i make in terms of the downside for Le'Veon. i could see him getting 300 plus touches and still finishing outside the top 14 or 15 uh running backs in terms of fantasy scoring but he can also finish you know top two or three he has a really big range of outcomes yeah, I think we have to factor in some projection for growth in that offense. Sam Darnold yeah, in year sure. two, we have to expect that team to get better. And yeah. as much as we might be concerned about Adam Gase coming in there as a you know first year with that team, he's not necessarily downgraded on what they had last year. I, I think that the arrow has to be pointing up for the offense as a whole in general. How you know steep that arrow is pointing up is the question, right? And yeah. And that concern you brought up about their offensive line is a big one. That was something that when I threw it out in the slack, Justin Edwards, who has been on the yep. podcast before talking about offensive lines, really hammered at me. He was like, look, that Jets O-line is not very good. And mm -hmm. he went so far as to say, if you're going to take a running back, you should take Connor just based upon the offensive line upside there. And mm -hmm. I, to me, I, I have to I, I push back against him just based on the volume alone, like you talked about. Like We know Bell's going to get those touches as a runner, as a receiver. And I think that in a tournament setting like this, 
Mm-hmm. I really want to bank on that volume and hope that he breaks enough big plays and yeah. maybe that offense does take enough of a step forward to where he can be that top guy. Now, getting back to Beckham, what you mentioned about how there are so many playmakers in that offense potentially being a downside, I don't necessarily see that being a downside if the guy we're talking about is the best playmaker on that team. You know what I mean? Right. And so that's why I was also willing to take Kelsey in the first round, you know? I, I think that matters. Like, yes, there are a lot of weapons in a, in a lot of different offenses, but if you can get the top end guy, not only are you getting the player with you know the most raw ability or talent or whatever you want to call it, you're also getting the guy who, because there's so many other weapons there, he, he's going to be freed up more than he would be on another team. Like DeAndre Hopkins is like the exception to this rule, right? Where yep. he's going to soak up so much defensive attention. Or I guess Julio Jones would would also fit this bill, mm-hmm. where what they do on the field is almost superhuman, right? And I think that in a situation like this, where you look at Odell Beckham, like the fact that they have Landry, that they have Nick Chubb, that Baker Mayfield can do stuff with his legs in addition to with his arm, uh, that they have Njoku, I I think that that actually helps Beckham in general because that offense as a whole is going to be more dangerous. And I I really didn't mean to to go to that word with the Browns, but here we are. Um, No, I'm I'm in complete agreement. I mean, I I was just I was mentioning it as a um as as something that the public might view as a downside. I'm a firm believer that if a, the better an offense is, the better it's going to be for their stars. Um, I mean, we look at players like Antonio Brown's probably been the best example of that. They've they've had so many weapons there and they've been such dynamic offense. But just because they're so good, Antonio's was just able to get his all the time. Uh, and I mean, one thing this is this might be a little bit counterintuitive, but going back to Le'Veon bell really quickly one of the most important aspects for an offense is to have an efficient passing game that's what's ultimately going to lead to scoring opportunities for everybody on the team i think an underrated aspect of the jets talking about the progression of that offense and sam darnold is the addition of jameson crowder if jameson crowder can stay healthy uh and stay on the field he's going to really help darnold progress as as an nfl level passer i think well and also hopefully soak up some short level of the field coverage to open up Bell as a yeah. receiver too. Yeah. yeah, I think that there is uh, something to be said about Crowder. That's a great point. I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought him up. But um, I brought up Kelsey, and I want to pivot now to his quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, mm-hmm. and the general research that you've done on the quarterback position to this point in the offseason. I know you have a lot of this coming up at 4 for 4 but I'm curious, with Mahomes specifically, how much or what sort of regression do you expect from him in his third NFL season? And admittedly, this is his only his second year as a starter. But what do you, what do you expect from Mahomes? In short, he he just put up unsustainable numbers, and I mean he's he put up he's only second quarterback uh, to crack 400 fantasy points. Uh, he's only seventh quarterback with a touchdown rate above eight and a half percent over the course of a season, minimum 200 pass attempts. He scored. Uh, almost 74 fantasy points more than the quarterback two. That's the highest gap over the last decade. The average gap in that span between the QB1 and QB2 is just under 27 fantasy points. So it's not that I don't think that Patrick Mahomes is still the QB1 or can still be the QB1. Uh, it's just that it really comes down to the regression. If he regresses back to what the normal gap in quarterback scoring has been, we know quarterback scoring is generally very flat, then it just makes it very hard to justify a second or third round price tag in a standard one quarterback league because you're if you're paying that price tag, you're paying for the, the difference that he had over the quarterbacks last year. I mean, if he reverts back down to like even a 6% 
touchdown rate, which is of the active quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers, 6.3 percent, uh, Russell Wilson, 6 percent touchdown rate. Those are the highest active rates in the league. Uh, all of a sudden, he's really close to Matt Ryan's numbers. And are you paying uh, a third round price tag to get Matt Ryan production? I mean, that just seems a little bit silly to me. So I'm not I, I don't see myself drafting any quarterback uh, in the first four rounds, just because you're getting players at the at more high demand positions, running back and wide receiver, that are uh, that can really separate themselves from the crowd at positions that don't have flat scoring. And traditionally, I mean, over the past five years, quarterbacks that finished as the quarterback won the previous season uh, have not traditionally finished even in the top three or top five that has a little bit to do with injuries but it has a lot to do with people just continue to pay for these outlier seasons and they just aren't sustainable yeah it's crazy to me that the matt ryan 2016 season we saw him put up those numbers and everybody in the offseason well regression's coming great regression's coming we Mm -hmm. can't avoid it don't pay for matt ryan and his draft price didn't actually go up that high into that you know top Mm -hmm. five range Mm -hmm. but with mahomes people are just so over the moon for this guy and they're still willing to pay that qb1 price it's just it's mind-boggling to me i I don't get it Mm -hmm. i I honestly don't even know if he should be the overall qb1 in our rankings is he still the the first quarterback you would draft like let's say Everybody in your draft waited until the eighth round to draft their quarterback. And at that point, your starters are all set. You're like, okay, I'm going to be the guy who breaks the seal. Would you take Mahomes first or would you take somebody else? I, I think you could really make a good case for uh, for Deshaun Watson or Andrew Luck. The, my, my concern with Mahomes is that we don't know if Tyreek Hill is going to be there. And mm-hmm. that, that spread it out air raid offense, I mean, a lot of that is predicated on keeping that spacing, keeping those DBs spread out. And Tyreek Hill is obviously probably the best player in the league to do that. If you take him away... All of a sudden, you have uh, you have safeties close to the line. You have smaller spaces to throw in, and all of a sudden, a lot more problems for Mahomes. Uh, so, I mean, sure, this offense is great. Sure, you have weapons like uh, Kelsey, and I mean, I, I guess we think Williams is good. We have a pretty small sample size there too, and Andy Reid has traditionally had some pretty good offenses. But without Tyreek, is there any chance Mahomes does what he did last year? I, I don't think so. Yeah, no, I'm with you now kind of regardless of his value relative to the other QBs, where would you feel comfortable paying for Mahomes in, let's say, a one-quarterback draft first? Like you mentioned not paying for him in the first four rounds, but what round would you feel comfortable pulling the trigger? Yeah, I don't think he'll he'll ever fall here, but I just... With the skill position players available, like I mentioned, I just don't see myself taking any quarterback in the first five rounds. He would have to fall to round six for me to take him. Yep, that's where I put him too. Now, how about in a two-quarterback format, like the Scott Fishbowl or some other two-QB or Superflex league? Where would you take Mahomes there? Yeah, well, Scott Fishbowl is unique and just because of those, you basically get those video game bonuses. Uh, so I understand why he's going in the first round. Uh, second round's fine for me. I, I traditionally want to wait on quarterbacks but a lot of it is going to depend on my draft slot if i'm at the edges i'm i'm usually pretty nervous about missing out on quarterback runs uh so if i'm at like that three four turn and a quarterback run hasn't happened yet i might just double down on quarterbacks there sometimes just to not miss out on on a couple top 12 or top 15 passers uh but in in a two quarterback league i'm fine with Mahomes in a second Yep, that's where I had him too. And if he makes it to the third, I'm just slamming yeah, the, you have the to. draft button at, mm-hmm. at the third or the fourth. Now, uh, we're agreeing way too much about this. I mean, maybe we need to have a conversation <laughs> about IPAs or something, but um, we're not going to go there. I want to know how much credit you think Mahomes' success is due to 
Andy Reid and the Chiefs other coaches and their scheme because you talked that up a little bit. You know, Andy Reid traditionally has good offenses. Do you think that fantasy owners might tend to undervalue or maybe overvalue the impacts of coaching? And how do you think that impacts Mahomes' value? It's actually pretty ironic because I do a lot of work on coaching and play callers, and I, I think usually uh, it's a, it's pretty overvalued for the most part. Coaches are going to trend to their best players. Uh, there's there's only a few exceptions in the league, and that's why I mentioned earlier. I think probably the the biggest weapon that Andy Reid has had in formulating this offense has been Tyreek Hill. I mean, if if you look at it, Tyreek made. Alex Smith, one of the best deep passers in the league, uh, and we know that for most of his career he was the dink and dunk champ. So I don't know if you – without Tyreek Hill, if Andy Reid makes Alex Smith look like that. So obviously Patrick Mahomes is a way more dynamic talent than Alex Smith, but uh, I, I think hey, it's probably – it. I think it's probably a little more uh, a little more credit to the talent than the coach most of the time. Yeah, fair enough. Now I, I have kind of a, a weird tinfoil hat question for mm-hmm. you now. Do you think that quarterbacks ever get overvalued as free agents based upon that the coaches that they've worked with? Like, look at how much money Nick Foles got from Jacksonville after spending time with Andy Reid and with Doug Peterson, or how much money Kirk Cousins got after spending time with Jay Gruden. These are offensive-minded coaches. Like, what do you think the value of, you know, coaching, quote-unquote, trade secrets are in a QB's, you know, bag of tricks? Do you think that matters at all? Do you think that's part of why these quote-unquote bad teams are willing to pay up so much for these guys who might not be elite talents but they've come from good systems uh i think it's a little bit of that i think it's just uh, a supply and demand situation i mean they're there aren't 32 viable starting quarterbacks in the world. So when they get, even when there is a, a Nick Foles, they're almost forced to, to spend the money in those situations. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that there's probably uh, some back and forth between coaches. We see players. Um, how many times do we see the, the coaches go back to players that they've, they've had uh, on their teams before. So I don't, I don't want to say tinfoil hat, but I think there's something to that for sure. Cool. Now let's get more into these play calling tendencies of coaches. And you have a great article up on 4 for 4 about this. I'll link to it in the show notes. How much can we tie play calling to in-game circumstance, you know, like score, mm-hmm. time remaining, all that stuff, versus just a coach's natural tendencies? Just at a base level, what's the correlation there? Or how do we wade through that and, and figure out what's actionable? Yeah, so uh, I, I kind of want to preface this by explaining what, what I did with this series and it's, it's kind of because of the question you just asked me, I've spent, mm-hmm. th- I've spent the last four seasons uh, really diving into these play callers and doing deep dives, like 2,500 word write-ups on, on coaches going to, to new teams. Uh, and the fact of the matter is a lot of the time, the, the most predictable thing that you could look for in terms of, of tendencies from a team is their tendencies from the season before. And that's because of what I uh, just touched on is that a lot of times unless there's some overhaul in talent coaches are going to default to those most talented players uh the the best receivers are going to get the most targets that's why i'm not worried about odell uh moving to a to a high-powered offense with other weapons uh and the best the the teams with the best quarterbacks are going to throw more so really what i'm looking for is just these teams on the extremes uh the the few coaches that are just going to run no matter what the few coaches that are going to to pass no matter what and then we could break it down on on a situation level but really there's only a handful of coaches in the league where you they're taking over offense and you say okay all of a sudden this is going to change so which teams play calling tendencies are the most unique to you and how does that impact the team's players in fantasy 
Yeah, so the the two that really stood out last year, we had uh, two new play callers in um, in Fickner and and Frank Wright, the Steelers and the Colts. They were top two in terms of passing rates in neutral situation. With the Colts, um, that that wasn't that big of a surprise. We've seen Andrew Luck teams just be very uh, very high in the ranks in terms of passing rate. Uh, Steelers. It probably wasn't a surprise. They've always been a relatively pass-heavy team. But last year, they went to the extreme. They were top two in neutral passing rate in my entire database over the last 14 seasons. There was a lot of people in the organization that thought that Ben Roethlisberger had a, a pretty big influence over Randy Fickner, who was taking over uh, for Todd Haley, who was a, a pretty pass-heavy coach, but not as pass-heavy as the Steelers were last year. And then on the other end of the of the extreme, you have the, the Greg Romans, the Brian DeBalls there. Uh, uh, they're very uh, rush heavy. Uh, so the a couple of things that that's going to have to do in terms of uh, how the offenses are influenced. Those very run heavy teams, they're often going to be uh, very susceptible to game script, and that's something that we look at very heavily in DFS. But I, I still don't think it's uh, it's taken into account uh, when it comes to to fantasy. If you're looking at start sits, you should really be looking at game script situations. And those run heavy teams, they're going to be forced the most to deviate from their game plans. Whereas those pass heavy teams, if for some reason they do get behind, uh, nothing's going to change much. They're already pass heavy. And if they are ahead big, it's usually because their passing game got them going. So uh, not much is going to change in those offenses. Yeah, one of the other teams that stands out to me, and this might be more scheme, I guess, than mm-hmm. play calling tendencies, are the Buffalo Bills. Yeah. Because Brian Dable there is, is very much committed to the run, but he's also really willing to let Josh Allen air it out. Mm-hmm. It's this this case of two extremes, right, where they want to be run heavy, but when they pass, they, they go deep basically all the time. I mean, how do you think that's going to play out this year? Because last year we saw, I, I think we saw the high the high range of outcomes for that offense. Like, I'm still worried that based upon how raw Josh Allen is, that this year it might just end up being a complete train wreck. I, I don't really know how to properly value him in that offense. What, what's your take on the Bills? So that's interesting because it's not only uh, it's not only Dable, Greg Roman and Matt Nagy, uh, they both have an average uh, rank in the bottom five in neutral passing rank as play callers, uh, but they all rank in the top five in average rank, uh, end of season rank, and deep ball rate. Hmm. So I think what that what that does is it gives these offenses a little more boom bust than people might expect. So if you just look at a surface level, you think these offenses are run heavy, which is going to limit these quarterbacks upside but really when they are throwing it they're airing it out and if we look at all three of those offenses uh and their quarterbacks josh allen um trubisky trubisky and uh and lamar then we have three mobile quarterbacks on top of it so mobile quarterbacks that are throwing deep so even though they are run heavy teams they have a very wide range of outcomes because they're going with those high efficiency deep throws and they're able to run the ball very well and in two quarterback leagues, those guys are all super mm. cheap. Just saying, yeah. I've been ending up with a lot of all three of those guys. And, and like I said, I don't even like Josh Allen. I don't even know how to evaluate him, but I'm drafting him because of that boom-bust upside you talked about. Uh, another team that is curious to me are the New England Patriots because mm. their season-long statistics seem to mean less when we're talking about a Josh McDaniels offense because the Patriots are tailoring their game plans week by week according to their opponent. Do you have any way to decipher or kind of contextualize those game to game plans versus the season long numbers? Like, have you dove into that and all in your research? I, I just, the one thing that 
always stands out with the Patriots, and uh, it's it's tough because it comes down to a committee. But they've they're one of the most consistent teams in terms of their running back usage, especially through the air. So whether it comes down to their pass or run splits, one thing that's been really consistent with Josh McDaniels is he's going to use those running backs out of the backfield. And I think the the most obvious one person that translates to is James White, and we saw him uh, actually turn in a really good, probably one of the more underrated seasons last year, and I think that probably carries over to this year. But you don't think he's a little overvalued now because of that? It seems like he's being overdrafted to me. Do you? I mean, I, I think he's he's one of those those satellite backs that you're uh, – I mean, he has a pretty consistent role in the offense. And, I mean, what's his ADP at right now? It's not, it's if, if he's – if I'm in a situation like here in Scott Fishbowl where I don't have a running back through like six rounds and he's sitting there in the seventh or eighth, I'm, I mean, how many other guys with any kind of floor are you getting in that spot? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I guess if you are taking that zero RB approach, you kind of mm-hmm. have to target that type of player. Yeah, but I guess that's really not my MO when it comes to drafting. So sure. when I see him kind of creep up to the top of you know ADP when I'm on the clock mm-hmm. to draft in the fifth or sixth round or seventh yeah. round or wherever he's going, I'm usually clicking the button for a wide receiver or a tight end in that spot. So that, sure. that's why I tend to think that he's not really worth it. But I guess Sixth that might just have high. to do with my tendencies, right? Yeah, sixth round is pretty high, but I mean, uh, once you get into that seventh to eighth round, you're you're not getting a lot of true floor players. Uh, it's it's probably probably a little more dart throwy than people like to admit. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you get there, I I don't mind him. So which teams' play calling situations are the most difficult for you to decipher? Which teams are you having the hardest time unpacking? Uh, one that I think is is really curious is the Jaguars. You touched on uh, Nick Foles going over to Jacksonville and. Even though that Jacksonville is their really run-heavy team last year, and uh, they Doug Marone has been one of the most run-heavy play co- coaches uh, in the league, uh, they brought over John DeFilippo as their offensive coordinator this year, who uh, in two seasons as a main play caller has ranked in the top 10 in neutral passing rate. So with Nick Foles, uh, with DeFilippo, uh, kind of contrasting with with the Doug Marone style, it, it, I'm having a hard time figuring out exactly what these Jaguars are going to be. I think people automatically want to put them into that run-heavy offense, but I think they could be closer to the middle this year. And then another one that's really interesting uh, is the Steelers. I mentioned that last mm-hmm. year in their first season with Randy Fickner, they were one of the most, uh, or the most pass-heavy team, at least in neutral situations. Uh, another thing that really changed for them is they just stopped throwing the deep ball. Uh, they, they had been top five in the league in three of the last four seasons. Um, I, I think actually it might have been four out of the last four. Last year they ranked 17th. Now they lose Antonio Brown. They're without Le'Veon Bell. We don't know exactly how. I mean, I think Juju's going to be fine as a fantasy asset, but how much are they able to stretch the field with just Juju? And then obviously James Conner is good, but he's not the receiving back that Le'Veon Bell was. So I think this offense probably has a little more downside than people might realize right now. Yeah, I totally agree. It's just going to be so much different without Antonio Brown there. Mm-hmm. And as much as I like Juju, as much as I think that James Conner is a fine pick, I do have concerns about him. I, I mean, I touched on that earlier. What are you th- doing with the Dolphins? Because there's just been <laughs> so many changes in that offense. And in, in general, I should say that I tend to avoid what I believe are going to be bad teams when I'm yeah. drafting fantasy players. So I'm not really drafting many of these guys, if any. But Kenyon Drake still has a fair amount of buzz. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like, I, I can't really get behind it. And I'm curious, what do you expect their play calling to look like uh, this year? I think it'll probably be um, probably pretty similar uh, to last year. Uh, they, I mean, they're supposed to be a really bad team. Again, I think they're projected for only 
four or five wins. So we talk about uh, Kenyon Drake. I mean, game script could really affect uh, how he performs this year. And they, uh, Chad O'Shea, their new play caller, he doesn't the offenses of he came from don't really deviate that much from what uh, the Dolphins looked like last year. I don't know. I don't know what pieces you're comfortably buying in their passing game and expecting much production. I mean, obviously, if they're behind, they're gonna have to throw a bunch. Uh, but what receiver are you plugging in consistently? We know uh, Kenny Stills is basically a boomer bust. Played. What's Devonte Parker gonna be? Uh, the only guy that I think might be interesting is maybe a, a bye week plug in is Kalen Balage. Yeah, and he's going super late, so I, I don't think that there's any downside to taking that sort of player. But yeah, for me, it just comes down to price with a player like Kenyon Drake. I, I worry about him. Now, aside from the Arizona Cardinals, who are, are kind of the obvious answer to this question, which teams do you forecast for the greatest differences in play calling philosophies between last season and this upcoming season? Uh, so I think two big switches can come from teams that actually didn't have a switch in coaching, just a switch in, in personnel. And for, uh, the first one, 49ers, they're hopefully going to have a full season with Jimmy Garoppolo and Kyle Shanahan is, has typically ranked near the top in terms of passing rate in neutral situations. 49ers ranked near the bottom last year. I think that had a lot to do with lack of weapons, injuries at the quarterback position, even though it does include a lot of running back passes. Uh, passes to running backs Shanahan's a, a coach that likes to throw and then kind of in in a similar vein but for different reasons right across the bay I think the Raiders are going to be uh, a much less vanilla offense just because the addition of Antonio Brown alone is really going to stretch things out we've talked about uh, guys like Josh Hermsmeyer air yards is a is a wide receiver stat and Derek Carr he was that dink and dunk quarterback last year but all of a sudden they they got guys that could stretch the field they got JJ Nelson they got Tyrell Williams so I think this Raiders offense is one that's going to look very different this year too so getting back to the Niners which of those weapons are you interested in in fantasy because I've talked <laughs> about this on the show before it seems like it's going to be really difficult to figure out which of those guys to draft which of them are the, the right values and which ones are being overvalued uh, because they're all generally going in similar spots you know Dante sure. Pettis Debo mm-hmm. Samuel and, and all the running backs are just a complete jumble so what are you doing with the Niners playmakers yeah, this is uh, this is a little bit of a cop out, but um, I'm trying to kind of get equal shares of all the Niners running backs. Uh, they've they've already talked about uh, possibly having uh, uh, inactive from that group uh, when the season starts. But uh, I, I generally want the cheapest guys. But I think you have to you can't ignore the the Tevin Coleman Kyle Shanahan connection. They mm-hmm. they were together in Atlanta, and then uh, uh, Breda has been typically the cheapest guy so if i mean if if there is an odd man out for me it's probably mckinnon which i don't know if that's the popular opinion uh and then uh the receivers i mean the i think a guy that's going to creep up adp if, if you're playing best ball now and you're talking about getting value um i think we could see marquise goodwin's adp rise as we get closer to the season so if you're drafting right now i'm probably buying marquise goodwin the most are you watching those guys in preseason like how do you I guess as the offseason plays out, adjust your rankings to borrow from uh, Denny Carter when it <laughs> when it comes to these sorts of situations that are a little bit more cloudy. What what are you doing through the offseason to adapt to that? I, I think one thing that especially when we get like now we're at between Fourth of July and the first week of preseason, we're going to get so much coach speak. And basically, I'm basically just being contrarian on those. So when this player when a player all of a sudden starts getting uh, 
starts getting touted by their coaches that's going to shoot their ADP up and then once preseason starts kind of the same thing when you get when you see that player that's kind of on the fringe of like is he worth drafting and he scores the long touchdown it it happens every year the ADP shoots up and now I'm just ignoring them so the players that I liked that uh that might not be getting the highlights in preseason all of a sudden their ADP is dropping targeting them and the players that get those splash plays uh but you know on 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 low number of snaps uh let the public overdraft those guys yeah, it makes sense. Fade, the coach speak. Um, yep. I'm fully behind that. Now, I want to ask you about a couple other teams that are kind of curious to me and who I think might be in for some amount of difference from last season. And I want to start with Washington because mm. I, I look at how run-heavy they were last year, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if they're even going to be able to do that this year. Like, Is their shoddy defense going to force them to pass more? What do you think about the Redskins' outlook this season? The problem with them is like even if they are forced to throw, like their their weapons are are pretty atrocious, and they're going to have uh, a, a rookie quarterback running the show. But uh, assuming that that he wins out, but it's still an offense that I, I mean I just don't know what piece of the offense I want to go after. Probably the most intriguing guy there is like you said, if they do have to throw, it's probably Jordan Reed. He was top three in terms of Titans that led their their teams in targets in a game last season, which a lot of people don't know. That didn't translate to a lot of targets, but I think he led the team in targets six times, and that was not even playing uh, the entire season. So he's probably the most intriguing piece to me right now. And then if again, if they are if they can't run like they did last year, which I don't think they will be able to be, uh, I, I still think Chris Thompson is one of those good post hype sleepers. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, Jordan Reed, speaking to him, 20% target share last year, which was mm-hmm. pretty massive. And, and more on him later uh, when we talk about tight ends. But what about the Rams? Because I don't think it'll be drastic, but I could see a slight uptick in passing back towards Sean McVay's 2016-2017 rates, especially mm-hmm. with Todd Gurley likely to lighten his workload. Do you think that that makes sense? It definitely makes sense because I just don't think – I mean, it's. I think it's pretty obvious that at this point that – that Gurley's not going to be a 20-touch-per-game guy. And then the the big X factor here is Cooper Cup. I mean, they love running those three wide receiver sets, uh, and if they can have those three healthy guys on the field, they're going to be able to do what they want to do in terms of continuing to pass. And he's, I mean, he's their best red zone option. So he's really the X factor for me. If if he's there, uh, I really am in love with him. I already like the offense, but that passing game, and if he's healthy to start the season, that's the big uh, kicker for me. And I've talked about this on the show. I don't expect him to be healthy for week mm-hmm. one. And yeah. so that makes me wonder, should I be paying up more for Brandon Cooks and Robert Woods and even Josh Reynolds as guys who are going to see more volume in the early part of the season? And then maybe as Cup starts to get more healthy, you can try to trade those guys in season. I- I'm curious if I'm undervaluing those receivers. I, I think I might be. What- where are you at on those guys? I I love me some Robert Woods. Uh, I mean he's he's the one that when Cup went out, uh, he's I think his his role really expanded. Where Brandon Cooks kind of stayed the same. Um, I I don't I. I I don't know what to expect out of Josh Reynolds. I mean, even if Cup doesn't start the season, if assuming it's not on Pup, uh, is Reynolds going to give you anything a trade value in the first three to four weeks of the season? I'm not so sure about that. So if he doesn't step up, and he didn't do that last year, he was largely right. a bust mm-hmm. in that sort of situation, do you think there's anybody else who could? Are you looking at Darrell, uh, Darrell Henderson or one of the tight ends for the Rams? 
Darrell Henderson's the obvious one for me. The problem with him is just like how high is the industry going to push his ADP up? Uh, probably the the question is going to be answered based on what we see in the preseason. If if Gurley's just getting n- n- no work and Henderson is balling, he's probably going to become uh, really hard to draft just because of price. But he's the other piece that I want in this offense for sure. Henderson went in the beginning of the fifth round of my Scott Fishbowl draft. <laughs> so crazy. It's friggin' wild. Uh, all right, last team I want to ask you about is Green Bay. And this is kind of cheating mm-hmm. because Matt LaFleur ranked 30th in situation neutral pass rate last year, but that was with Marcus Mariota in Tennessee. Yeah. What do you expect him to do with Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay? I, I think you have to give him a mulligan. We're expecting LaFleur to uh, to come in and, and hopefully revitalize that Titans passing game. I don't know if there's anything to revitalize, at least pump it up, that <laughs> Titans passing game. Uh, obviously, injuries to, to Delaney Walker, Marcus Mariota had a big impact on that. LaFleur coming two years ago from the Sean McVay offense is kind of why we were expecting that. I don't imagine a situation where the floor comes in and all of a sudden tries to make Green Bay this this rushing team. I mean, you have Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers had a down season, uh, at least in terms of, of what we expect from Aaron Rodgers last year, and, and he's due for some positive regression. They've talked about some uh, ideas of like more play action for Rodgers, which Rodgers said he doesn't love, so there's already a little bit of conflict there. Uh, but I, I would mostly expect to see what we've expected to see out of Aaron Rodgers' offenses in the past. Yeah, I agree. Now, on the flip side, what about Tennessee? Because Lafleur is gone. Do you expect them to kind of maintain that ground and pound defensive mentality in 2019? Hundred percent. I mean, I, I, a lot of that just had has to do with the fact that, like, look where they went for their offensive coordinator. Coordinator. They hired from within. They hired. They promoted their tight ends coach uh, <laughs> from. Uh, to the offensive coordinator, and I think that just has a lot to do with them just wanting to stay the course. It's it's not exciting. It's not boring. I mean, it's it's not uh, it's not going to get you excited for for fantasy. I mean, maybe Delaney Walker benefits because it is the tight ends coach being promoted, but I don't expect anything uh, too much different from what we saw last year. And we're going to close out the show with more tight end talk. But before yeah. we get there, I want to talk about this episode's sponsor, and that's Draft. Listeners, if you're not drafting best ball on draft, you got to check it out. These are season-long leagues, but there's no in-season management required. All you have to do is draft your team, and that's it. No salary caps. These are live drafts, just like the season-long leagues you play with your friends. You don't even have to set your lineup. Your best players are automatically selected each week of the season, so you are going to get your highest possible score in each week. So it's really kind of the best of your roster versus the best of everyone else's roster, and that rewards the people who are the best at drafting. And draft is awesome because you can join a league anytime you want. These best ball drafts fire every couple minutes, so you can sign up and start drafting right away. And even though the format's a little different than a traditional league, these best balls are great preparation for your standard season-long leagues. They're way better than most mock drafts because the leagues are for cash. You're playing for real money, and that weeds out all the types of knuckleheads who will join a mock draft just to pick someone nonsensical like Tim Tebow and log out in the first round. Drafts best balls start at only $3, so there's a league for everybody. If you're signing up as a new player, you can use our promo code to get a free entry into one of those $3 best ball drafts when you make your first deposit. That promo code is 444, spelled just like our website's address, the number 4, then F-O-R, then the number 4 again. Just search Draft in the App Store or go to PlayDraft.com and play in a real money game for free using our code 444. Again, that's the number 4, F-O-R, then the number 4. And one of the strangest positions to figure out in a best ball draft is the tight end position because it's a onesie. 
And the differentiation between the top end guys and the middle class guys and the dart throw guys is so stark. And I want to talk to you, TJ, about that tight end position in a little bit more depth. You wrote up a really great article about how tight end stats from previous seasons mm. can correlate to you know future fantasy production. And while some of these may be sort of obvious, some of the best predictors of TE success are fantasy points per game, yards per game, and targets per game. But a less obvious one to some listeners might be average depth of target or A dot. Are there any tight ends being undervalued despite their A dot arrow pointing up after last year? Yeah, and can I just highlight something about the article real quick before oh, we get into yeah, that? And it. I mean, the so the the kind of idea of this article is just to like what carries over from year to year for every position just because people get so caught up and i mean look at how how much adp reflects previous season scoring and it's it's almost a perfect correlation so what can we see from last year that's going to carry over and yeah you talked about those points yards and targets per game uh those are gonna be very consistent for the tight end position but the idea is to figure out what we can count on what we can't count on. And one thing that is, uh, is really volatile for the tight ends is that efficiency, especially scoring and, and red zone efficiency. So if you are looking for tight end, you need to continue to, uh, keep looking at that volume and, and that yardage usually follows, uh, tight ends just generally are, are the, the, the least injured position, at least for like our, our starter, uh, fantasy level starters. And they tend to maintain their role in the offense, uh, the most, at least from a position wide standpoint, obviously the most dominant wide receivers and and running backs are are going to maintain their roles but if we just look at like the the top 12 ish tight ends and the top 24 running backs top wide receiver turnover there's usually the least turnover at tight ends uh but you you talked about average depth of target now hold on i'm I'm gonna interrupt you here now and say let's hold off on that average depth of target because i want to dig in more on that idea of Mm -hmm. embracing the efficiency stats but maybe fading the touchdown numbers and sure who stands out to you in that regard uh, in terms of guys that we might want to fade because of their touchdown production last year? I mean, Eric Ebron is the op- obvious guy. Oh, is man. there anybody else who fits that bill for you? Um, so the the Buccaneers tight ends as a whole, they really overachieved. Uh, I, so the way I, I formulate this is I, I look at uh, expected touchdowns based on scoring rates from every single point in the red zone. The, the Buccaneers tight ends were – uh, projected to score five or six uh, red zone tight ends. They combined for 10. Uh, the only thing I would say there is that while Brait and Howard both really overachieved, it took Brait, uh, it took an injury to OJ Howard for Brait to, uh, to get that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, Howard was really dominating targets and snap share early in the season. So I think OJ Howard is one of those rare exceptions to where, yes, he is going to regress efficiency-wise, but I could see his volume going up a lot. Uh, I think people will probably still look at uh, at this um, this tight end situation and think Bray can be one of those like late tight ends that can get you uh, some spot starts, but I I don't see it happening. I could see him like getting under 40 targets this year. If you're making that sort of dice roll on a tight end, I think you're doing the tight end position wrong. You really do want to chase that volume more than anything else. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to go after those touchdown bingo types of players. Like You want the guys who are getting targets, and Brait does not figure to be that guy. I think O.J. Howard is is properly being inflated this year, and he's my tight end four. I'm sure he's probably close to that for you. 
Um, I was actually I was actually trying to double down and get get OJ Howard in the first four rounds in SFB, but he went before I had the chance to do that. Yep, if he was there for me in the fourth, I would have considered him, but he was not. Um, or, or no, he was there, but I, I think I just like I said, I, I saw Mac sitting there after I almost took Mac in the third. I was like, well, here we go. Uh, it's but, a tough trigger to pull, but I think it's it would have been with this scoring format how premium tight ends are. I hate to go back to SFB at the beginning, but it would have been a really unique build. Yeah, I mean there there's still a lot of guys who go a little bit later, and and we're gonna touch on more of them as we go here through the tight end position that I like, and and so that's why I was willing to pass on Howard because I already had Kelsey. But let's get back to the question I asked you at the beginning of the segment uh, about average depth of the target. Now, mm-hmm. which tight ends do you think are being undervalued based upon you know? their a dot relative to uh i guess adp or, or general expectation in fantasy yeah so two guys that finish in the top three at tight end in terms of average depth of target if we just look at tight ends that had at least 40 targets mark andrews and chris herndon now chris herndon uh he's been getting a little buzz around the industry we talked about the jets earlier uh in in the podcast and how we expect that pass game to take a little bit of a step forward he might be facing an early season suspension i don't think that's official yet uh, so that might ding his ADP a little bit. Uh, he's kind of going around the 13-14 range. Mark Andrews is is a player that I think on in some really deep drafts, uh, if people are playing best ball, I've started hearing his name pop up. But uh, he was also top three in average depth of target. And I talked about earlier that this uh, this Ravens offense is one that I think they might push it down the field a little bit more than people expect. And uh, even though the the passing usage wasn't huge, uh, for for the Baltimore Ravens, if we look at target shares, Mark Andrews started creeping towards that like 20% target share range towards the end of the season. Now, can if if Baltimore all of a sudden starts throwing it 30 times, does he maintain that? I'm not sure, uh, but he's an interesting dart throw. I mean, 11 uh, an 11 yard ad- average depth of target that's similar to guys like Ty Alshon, Robert Woods, Devonte Adams. So uh, there's some upside with those two guys there. Yeah, a couple other late-round dart throws that I'm at least intrigued by are Ricky Seals-Jones on the Cardinals. Mm. His dot last year was 10.1, and Tyler Eifert on the Bengals, uh, dot yeah. of 9.2. With Seals-Jones, I just don't know how he fits into Arizona's offense after all these changes. And with Eifert, sure. the big question is always going to be his health, right? Do you have any interest in either of those players? Because it seems like the upside is there, but there's also a ton of risk, right? Uh, I mean... We've seen what Eifert can do with health, when healthy. Uh, so out of those two guys, I mean, if I I don't know if you even need to draft him in traditional leagues right now in best ball. I'm I'm gonna have quite a few shares of him. That that offense is uh, was pretty pass heavy last year and their new coach Zach Taylor. He he comes from some pretty pass uh, heavy offenses himself. So there could be some opportunity there. Yep, and I, I did like your Mark Andrews call as well. I he was on my list for this question, and I think that on top of that general a dot production that, that we can expect from him he should also see a jump in the nine percent target share mm-hmm. he posted last season and it just so happens the target share is also uh, a pretty strong correlator to future fantasy success so who are some other tight ends who might surprise owners this year with maybe bigger target shares than expected yeah, I mean, we talked about Eric Ebron is like the ultimate uh, regression candidate, negative regression candidate this year. A lot of that is going to be because Jack Doyle is going to be back on the field. Uh, Jack Doyle uh, uh, was actually actually out targeted um, Ebron in most of the games that they played together last season. We know that Andrew Luck traditionally, uh, going back to the beginning of his career, has been one of the most tight end friendly quarterbacks in the league. He's he's shown that he's able to support two tight ends. Uh, so, I mean, I think Jack Doyle is probably going to be, um, he's going to be a tough start just because there's going to be a lot of variance in that offense. But 
I think his target share will be a lot higher than, than most people think. And at a position that after the top five or six guys, it's pretty ugly. You could you can do worse than Jack Doyle. Yeah, for sure. Now, I think we should also give another little shout out here to O.J. Howard. He was at a 13 percent target oh, yeah. share last year, but that should go up. Uh, Adam Humphreys is gone. Deshaun Jackson is gone. He's got to see more targets this year, just kind of out of dumb luck more than anything else. Uh, another yeah. guy I really like is Austin Hooper. He was mm-hmm. at 14% last year, which was better than Kyle Rudolph, better than Greg Olson, better than Chris Herndon, and a lot of other guys who are being drafted ahead of him. I think that Atlanta passing offense is one that's going to be sneaky productive this year, and it's one of the reasons why I'm not really ready to fully fade Matt Ryan after another highly efficient season. I think that maybe that's just what that offense is now. It's, it's kind of impressive. They went from kind of this offense that we thought couldn't reproduce the stats and Yes, they had a down year in 2017, but 2016 was great. 2018 was great. And I think that that's going to translate to production for Hooper. Uh, What do you think about him? And if there's anything else you want to add on OJ Howard, throw that in too. Well, I I wrote an article at four 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 called OJ Howard's a tight end worth paying for. I think he's a guy that can uh, he can usurp uh, Zach Ertz as a top three tight end this season. So I I really like him to jump up a lot. And then just not even just Hooper specifically, but that passing game as a whole. Uh, we've talked about um, coaching changes. Dirk Carter coming from Tampa Bay, coming back to Atlanta. Uh, the the only three times that Matt Ryan's offenses have ranked in the top three in neutral game passing rate were under Dirk Cotter, and it was all three of those seasons. So he's coming back. Uh, so when Dirk Cotter and Matt Ryan have been paired together, they've thrown a lot. Yep, and we touched on Jordan Reed earlier. He had a 20% target share last year. I really mm-hmm. don't think that's in line to change because – as you mentioned, they don't have much else in terms of receivers. Uh, a couple other deeper guys I want to throw at you just to kind of spitball a little bit here. These are complete dart throws. Mike Kosecki on Miami. Mm. He could also qualify on the eight outside, by the way. He had an 8.7 mm-hmm. average depth of target last year. And Darren Waller in Oakland. He's getting talked up this offseason by John Gruden, and he's not really competing with that many known quantities. And we know that Derek Carr likes to check down. So as much as we might want to get excited about Tyrell Williams in that offense. Maybe Darren Waller's the better play. I don't know. What do you think about Gusecki? What do you think about Waller? Uh, They're both guys that are like really physical freaks. Gusecki, I think just by default, he might end up, we talked about, I talked about earlier, like this is a team that's probably going to be pretty bad forced to throw in a lot of situations. And I don't like their targets. Like Kenny Stills just isn't going to command eight or nine targets. And we don't even know if Devontae Parker is going to, be an NFL receiver in a year, so someone's going to have to catch the ball. Uh, Darren Waller is a converted wide receiver from college who uh, was another like physical freak that people, especially dynasty people, uh, were really hyping up when he came in the league. I believe it was with the Ravens. Um, obviously, hasn't done anything since he came in into the league, uh, but he has the tools. Uh, so those are interesting guys. Uh, another guy that um, I think rookie tight ends. I generally try to avoid with the plague, but uh, Denver, if Emmanuel Sanders might not be there to start the season, uh, and Joe Flacco, I talked about Andrew Luck being one of the most tight end friendly quarterbacks in the league. Joe Flacco's targeted tight ends on 21.2% of his pass attempts as a pro. That's a target share that was reached by just three tight ends last season. Uh, so rookie Noah Fant could carve out a role. Uh, Denny Carter actually just wrote him up on 4 for 4, so read that if you want some more on Noah Fant. Yeah, good deal. I'll link to that in the show notes, as well as uh, that article you mentioned about about O.J. Howard being a tight end worth paying up for. Uh, That's all I got for you, TJ. But before I let you go, um, why don't you let the listeners know what else they can expect to see from you in the offseason and then maybe even in season over at 444.com. 
Yeah, we uh, we touched on the Titans a little bit. We talked about their regression and their year-to-year stats. I'll be doing that for each position throughout the month of July. Uh, once August hits, it's DFS time, so I'll be shifting all my focus over to DFS. I'll be jumping back on uh, with Holden Kushner on the DFS MVP podcast as soon as pricing drops. That's usually around August 1st, so in less than a month, we're going to be talking about week one DFS, uh, and then uh, myself and Pat James will continue to team up to give you some preseason DFS action once the season starts. Uh I mean, we've added too many awesome writers to, to go through all the new DFS yeah. guys we have, but uh, we've really loaded up DFS this year. We're going to be doing um, expanded coverage for every slate, including Showdown. Any any slate that is available, we're going to have uh, on 4 for 4, so the content's going to be out of this world this season, so I'm pretty excited about that. I'm really excited about the squad that we've brought on, uh, so look for me on Twitter, look for me on 444.com, and I'll be sharing all of those guys' work uh, as we lead up to the season. Yeah, the roster is insane. Now, before I let you go, give me one one nugget about preseason DFS. Like, g- give the listeners a, a little something on the strategy side for that for that crazy format. If you're not there for the 30 minutes leading up to lock, just don't even play. I mean, we're gonna put out some some awesome content on like what you the day before each game on on what you can do, but we're gonna be updating those articles up to kickoff. And if you're not around, to, it's it comes down to playing time. And if you don't know who's going to play just it's not even worth putting in a lineup it's it's almost like basketball if you can find out minutes you're just going to have so much dead money in the pool that's all you're looking to do great stuff listeners he is tj hernandez you can find him on twitter at tj hernandez and you can find all of his work at 444.com give the site's twitter handle a follow at 444 football and you can follow me at greg sauce be sure to get your 444 subscription to be entered in for a chance to win a trip to draft in the ffpc main event in las vegas and please do us a solid by heading over to itunes and leaving us a rating interview i'll be back next week with another great guest so until then thank you for listening to the most accurate podcast this is how they taste well i can't count how many times i've been outdone by nihilism join the mods that splits an open heart into a schism i cower at the thought of other people's expectations and yet still and over